Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. This is the fifth part of the reading, and we're on chapter 10. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there, for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 10. Reval to Helsingfors. On August the 30th, when we had our new gaff jaws and had put the battens into the sails, we were impatient to be off. The cook remained in Reval, making room for my friend Mr. Wergo, who at one time represented Estonia in London, and had arranged to make the passage with me to Finland. In early youth, he had spent some time on a sailing ship, and now owns the Condor, a little Swedish yacht, delightful in sheltered waters, but not fit for the crossing to Helsingfors. We had sailed round the harbour in Condor the preceding night, when Wergo managed to tumble into the water while getting into a dinghy. The unfortunate effect of this was that when we had already started for Finland, he complained of feeling ill, and after being doused with aspirin from Rakundra's medicine chest, had to spend most of the passage in his bunk. At the start, however, he was most impatient to be off, and was anxious that we should use the engine, which, however, was determined not to be used. He explained that, whatever happened, he must be back the day after tomorrow in order to take his wife to a ball in honour of the British fleet, a squadron of which was expected. In his hurry, he actually towed us out of the harbour in the dinghy. That was at seven o'clock in the evening, and when he came on board again after a magnificent piece of work, for Rakundra is a heavy little ship, the illness began which lasted until we were already within sight of the Finnish coast. We started in the evening in the hope of getting a land breeze through the night, and this we did, though the breeze was so slight that when morning broke we were still close to the island of Wolf, which protects the Bay of Raval from the north. I steered all night until the dawn which found us clear of the bay. It was pleasant work with the admirable leading lights of Raval as a guide, and I took a number of bearings which confirmed the deductions made already about the gigantic character of our compass deviation. By half-past six, we had passed Nargan and Wolf, and at eight we could see Wrangell Island, east by north, and on the horizon, the Ravalstein, three-masted lightship, a little north of northwest. The wind dropped to nothing. It had only needed the dotting of an I and the crossing of a T to make it nothing before, and we were simply drifting. And then, quite suddenly, came the fog, and with it the slightest possible breath from the north, veering now and again, we steered, or rather pointed, for the ship could hardly be considered as under sail, north-east, east by north, then east-north-east. The fog was a white, cool fog and hid everything but the water within a few yards of the ship. The ancient mariner brought up the foghorn, and at the proper intervals he made the noises prescribed by law. Wergo came up, looked about him, wondered rather dismally what his wife would say to him if she had to go to the ball alone, and retired to his bunk. The ancient and I drowsed at the wheel in turns. There was something uncanny in being unable to see in a fog so white, so luminous in itself. Yet there it was, sure enough, fog, as Huckleberry Finn would say, and we began to be worried by noises. Once or twice there was good recognisable noises made by other vessels, and to these we cheerfully replied, proud of the fact that we could do as much ourselves. The worrying noises were the regular ones, signals from lighthouses, lightships and similar things, 
which we ought to have been able to identify and could not. The fog lasted until four in the afternoon. For some time before that, the wind had been easterly, such as it was, and we had been pointing north. We had heard one particular noise which had disturbed us very much indeed. Hoots on a foghorn, and then the clear ringing of a bell, repeated accurately at three-minute intervals. Now, when a ship moves at all, the desires of those on board tend to make them believe that she is moving faster than she is, in fact. Although, until we heard these signals somewhere to the south of us and seemingly quite near, we had supposed Rakundra was about halfway across the Finnish Gulf. Yet when we heard them, it never for a moment occurred to us that they could be anything but signals from some lighthouse or lightship standing far out from the Finnish coast. We accordingly searched the Baltic pilot and examined the Finnish coast in both English and German charts, trying to find a place alleged to make such noises during fog. We could find nothing of the kind and were actually beginning to be afraid that we had already come too near the land when the fog rolled southward as swiftly as it had come, disclosing a horizon absolutely naked to the north and bare to the south except for a three-masted ship without sails and with curious swellings about the masts. She was the Ravalstein lightship, which we had thought to be quite twenty miles astern. It was not until long afterwards that, idly looking over the chart of the Estonian coast, I realised that the three-minute bell we had heard when wrapped up in that blanket was from the Coxcar lighthouse, a few miles east of Wolfe. With the lifting of the fog came a wind from the northeast, which allowed us to sail northwards, humbled as navigators, but renewed in hope as human beings. We knew now where we were, and the wind was taking us not quite in the direction in which we wished to go, but pretty nearly in that direction. The only thing remaining uncertain was the deviation of our compass, and even with regard to that, we had a good deal of definite knowledge in place of the complete ignorance with which we had started from Riga. Later on, our confidence was increased by the sight of a three-masted schooner also sailing north. She had her sails full and was going at a great pace, rapidly overhauling us, but when she passed us, it was obvious that she was making much more leeway than even the generous Rakundra allowed herself. We were sure that she too was bound for Helsingfors, or at any rate for a sight of the Arnsgrund light vessel, which is the outermost mark to show the way in. When she was almost hull down beyond us, she went about and came sliding back again, and we decided that she had tacked on getting a sight of the light vessel, which we knew must be somewhere a little east of our course. In this way, navigating very much from hand to mouth, we took the schooner as our guide and stood on as she had done, until at the same moment the ancient sighted land ahead and I saw the light vessel about five miles distant on our starboard bow. We stood on till we thought we could fetch the vessel on the other tack and then went about, just as dusk was falling and when we received an extremely disconcerting shock. It's the Aronsgrund light vessel, sure enough, I had said, inspiriting myself and added by way of giving the crew and passenger some confidence in my knowledge to replace that which they had lost owing to the unfortunate reappearance of the Ravalstein. Uh, she will show two reds, uh, one for each masthead. I just got this information from the pilot book. Dusk fell. We were all on deck looking for those red lights, and then the vessel showed no red light of any kind, but a white light that vanished and reappeared one of those called occulting on the charts and in the light lists. 
Well, it isn't the Arensgrund after all, said the passenger, for the ancient supported me out of esprit de corps, and I, for our very honour, held to it that it was, in spite of the visible fact that it showed a white light instead of two red ones. I plunged down below and looked it up, once more in the Baltic pilot. Two red lights. I searched the German chart. Red. The English chart that I had brought in the spring. Red again. And then, just as a sort of last hope that was really no hope at all, I looked at the only other chart I had, which was a small sketch of the minefields attached to a little book of notices to mariners, given to me by Captain Wally of the Baltimore. This little sketch chart in general showed no details, but one detail that it did show fairly glowed before my eyes. Aaron's Grund light vessel, white occulting. The lights had been changed. It was the Aaronsgrund light vessel after all, and I returned on deck with a book in my hand, my authority as navigator triply reinforced by the printed word of the British Board of Trade. It was a proud moment, but I had no time to enjoy it, for with the dark which fell suddenly upon us came a great wind out of the east, and Rakundra, who had moved all day upon an even keel, was suddenly getting as much as she wanted. We could not fetch the light vessel with that tack, so we stood on beyond it and then went about again and fairly surged towards that white occulting light which had become, as it were, a personal possession. I suppose it was near eleven o'clock when the question of the colour of Aaronsgrund's eye was finally settled. At midnight we were within a cable's length of it, rushing through the dark without side lights, dependent as usual upon the riding light which I carried in the well. I had hoped to go into Helsingfors by daylight, for I did not know the channel, and more important, not only did not know the way to the Nylands Yacht Club, but did not know where to look for it, having been told vaguely that it was on an island. There are several hundred islands about, and the club is not marked in German, English, or Finnish charts. I therefore decided to take a pilot, and having no flares, waved the riding light. For a long time there was no reply, when, thinking that perhaps he took our riding light for the ordinary white light carried on the open fishing boats, we hooted at him with the foghorn. This may have been extremely incorrect, but it had an instantaneous result. Figures moved on the light vessel's decks. We heard shouts, and presently someone began swinging a lantern round in circles. They had understood, and all we had to do was to keep Rakundra near the light vessel while they launched a boat and put the pilot on board. This was not so easy as it might seem. Remembering the experience of Baltic port, we had feared to take sail off her in spite of the wind, and hove to she was knocked about considerably and drifted too near the vessel or else slipped off out into the outer darkness. All this was probably due to our lack of knowledge of her. On later occasions I had her hove to under full canvas in the most decorous and ladylike manner. Anyhow, there was one horrid moment when we thought we were coming into violent contact with the light vessel, the great bulk of which was heaving up and down in a most portentous manner right above us. The business of getting their boat out seemed very long, and we learnt afterwards that the pilot had been in his bunk and had to get up and dress. "'Who are you?' they shouted at us. "'English yacht!' we yelled back, and after that, perhaps because the fleet was expected next day and might avenge us, they did at last seem to get busy. There was the splash of a boat in the water, a bobbing lantern appearing and disappearing in the waves, a bump, and a large Finnish pilot tumbled on board with, Where do you want to go? 
Nylon's club. Right, keep Grohara light so. Now, captain. And with that, as pilots do, he expressed hunger and thirst. I fed him and poured Riga vodka into him, while he asked me, Did we not see you just as night fell, close by a three-masted schooner? Oh, you did? He laughed. Do you know we reported you by wireless to Helsingfors as a likely smuggler and told them to look out for you. Yours was the very last boat we thought would need a pilot. I suspect that the reason why they had been so long in answering our signals from the lightship was that they supposed that, being smugglers, we were playing some new trick on them. The Estonian smugglers, of whom there are many, make it their sport to tease the Finnish coastguards. I had heard much about it on the other side of the Gulf, where the smugglers are, as in old times in England, the heroes of the longshore population. One man in particular makes it his boast that he gets his cargo into Finland by a different method every time, and each time takes care to let the coastguards know the way they have been tricked. On one occasion, he arrived at evening with a cargo of spirits covered with a thin layer of potatoes, and the Finns sealed up the hold of his vessel for examination in the morning. During the night, he broke the seals, took out the spirit and disposed of it, and then woke the customs officer while it was still dark, and in a great state of perturbation asked them what he was to do, as in clearing up the deck he had accidentally broken their seals. Fined 200 marks for breaking the official seals. He paid the fine. Then, when he left, he sent a small keg of spirits to the customs officers, with a note expressing his gratitude for having been allowed for so small a sum to bring in such and such a quantity of spirit. After many such exploits, he was actually caught and imprisoned, and it was announced in the newspaper that he had been captured with 1,500 litres of spirit. He wrote indignantly to the editor to say that he had been captured with 3,000 litres of spirit, not 1,500, and wanted to know what had become of the rest. The censor, he complained, did not allow his letter to be published. When the pilot had finished his meat and drink, we went on deck again where Wergo, recovered from his illness, was steering. I had left the matches on the cabin table and went down again to get them. Responsibility gone, the pilot in charge and Rakundra already safely across, I thought I would lie down for a moment. Out of the last 32 hours, I had been 28 in the steering well. I lay down, just as I was, and the box of matches in my hand, and three hours later, matches still in hand, rushed on deck in a panic to find lights all around us, smooth water, the ancient forward ranging the anchor chain, Rakundra already brought to the wind and losing way, and the pilot on the point of saying, let go. The chain rattled out. The pilot went below with me to drink more vodka and collect his fee. I paid the money and uncorked bottles, half asleep and wholly angry. Twenty-eight hours of steering in calm and fog and then to sleep like a log during this last three hours of good sailing weather, just when I had meant to use the pilot in order to learn for myself how not to need him again. Chapter 11. Helsing Falls, Swinging the Ship Next morning, I came on deck to find Rakundra in the delightful anchorage of the Nylands Yacht Club. The clubhouse is itself on an island, and with other islands of pink and grey rock and a cliff on the mainland close above the water, gives perfect shelter to the little fleet that lies to mooring boys in this southern corner of Helsingfors Harbour. The harbour proper lay before us with white steamships along the quays on which were the low customs houses, the booths of a busy market, Blue trams slipping swiftly by, a lively, comfortable scene, 
while all over were the great domed churches and the cathedral spires that I have often admired from the sea when on ships bigger, but not better, than Recundra. Wurgo and I went ashore in the dinghy, he to hurry back to Raval by steamship and I to look for the friends who, after waiting for us last night in the clubhouse, had supposed that the fog had kept us on the other side of the gulf. In comparison with Riga and Raval, Helsingfors seemed not to have suffered from the war. The shops were full of all the things which, for the last few years, most Baltic towns have had to do without. With its clean steamers and blue trams, it seemed more Swedish than Finnish. Finland, real Finland, is to be found in the country, not in the capital, and walking through the streets of this modern western town with its restaurants and taxicabs, I kept thinking of the simple country life I had tasted in Finland years ago. Near Hitola, by Lake Ladoga, paddling with a friend in a canoe-shaped boat, I remember finding a little ancient steam yacht lying covered in on the reedy bank of a river. I was told that in its day it had made a voyage to Edinburgh and back. It was dropping into decay, that aged little steamer, and those who sailed in it were dead. The elk snuffed round it in the winter snow and wandered north to tell the reindeer, who perhaps on the shores of the Arctic had seen similar strange things. Looking north from that place to the pole was nothing but wild country, lake, marshes, ragged forest and ice-infested seas. The little steam yacht did not seem more foreign to it than this trim, stone-built capital. So as Ricandro was concerned, I wasted all that day in friendship. But early next morning, there was a coughing and a spluttering and spitting alongside, and I tumbled out to find that by that friendship, Rakundra was to profit after all. Commander Boyce had brought his little motorboat, Zingler, to take me for a run round the harbour, to show me the way through the boys and out into the fairway, which I had missed by falling asleep as we were coming in. We ran out one way and ran in another through well-marked channels, between the uncompromising rocks. The Finnish coast is not a coast on which to make mistakes, and I was glad I had not attempted the foolishness of trying to find the club for the first time in the dark. Once you know where it is, however, it is easy enough. There are shortcuts for small boats, but any yacht coming in here for the first time can do so safely by following the sailing directions for big ships until she is well into the southern harbour. Once there, she has but to follow the quay round into the southern corner of that harbour, and if she cannot find a spare boy, drop anchor until morning. After introducing me to a score or so of spa boys, eloquent in the language of upturned and downturned brooms, Boyce brought the Zingler back to Rakundra, and the ancient, for the first time indeed, for the only time on the whole cruise, except for getting water, made up his mind to come ashore. He wanted a special size of sailmaker's needles, besides some scrubbing brushes and mops which he did not trust me to buy. He was not in the least interested in the town. Towns, he said, are all one and all dirt. This was a manifest libel on the spotless Helsingfors, but the ancient had been a little embittered by the thick fringe of black grease which our waterline had acquired while lying in the harbour of Raval. We spent an exciting and expensive morning, we bought new brass rollocks for the dinghy, which the builder had disfigured with coarse, badly galvanised iron rubbish, which chafed the oars and did not fit. We bought rope fenders. We bought every block we could find that would fit our ropes, and regretted that we had not tried to buy them the day before, for 
but we could only find half a dozen and could not wait while the shops sent to Abo for more. We bought mops, woolly and stiff. We bought needles, shackles, hooks for the staysail, hooks for a hoisting strop for the dinghy, a vast hook with a strong spring clip for picking up a mooring buoy, a tin of colza oil for the binnacle, brass clips for the main and mizzen peak halyards, besides bread, butter, cheese, apples, Swedish oat cake, tobacco, stocking caps and a Finnish sheath knife, a gorgeous piratical thing with a horse's head for a hilt, a handle inlaid with red and blue and yellow, and a curved sheath of black and scarlet leather. Finally, with full pockets and empty purses, both of us laden like pack animals, we staggered back to the quay, signalled to the club boatman, and were put on board our ship. Then I went ashore again to inquire about a compass adjuster, for I'd seen a steamship being slowly shifted round and round a big wooden dolphin close astern of us, and had seen the white painted marks on the cliff and on the buildings, so that I had no doubt as to what was being done. I was anxious to get our own compass corrected, and a table of deviations drawn up so that the homeward voyage might be made with a smaller proportion of guesswork. The ancient, as always, was for starting at once. The compass is right enough, said he. You found the way here with it, and you'll find the way back. I showed him the list I had made of observed inexactitudes, some of them as much as two and a half points, which for the modern listener is about 30 degrees, for the compass was immediately over the motor. But he was unconvinced, and I left him hauling up the sails, to dry, as he said, but really as I well knew, in hopes that seeing them up, I should myself be persuaded that Helsingfors had done enough for us, and that we might put back to sea. When I came back from the harbour office, he had already fixed the hook and strop on the fore halyard and was prepared to haul the dinghy on board. He said nothing, but could not hide his disappointment when I told him that at eight o'clock next morning we were to be tied up to the dolphin and ready for the compass adjuster who was to swing the ship. I spent that evening in the Nylands Club. The Finnish six-metre boat Stella was there, back from racing at Cowes, and looking at her slim body, built for speed and nothing else, and then over the water to the stout, imperturbable Rakundra, I thought how differently men take their pleasures on the sea. I would not have her as a gift, and I'm sure that Mr. Donner, her owner, would turn in disgust from my comfortable cruiser. After dinner, I went into the club library and found there a really wonderful collection of sailing books from all the countries of the world. I read over and again that excellent little book by Thomas Fleming Day, the American, and then, for the first time, settled down to read Macmullen. Few books on sailing fail to quote Macmullen, but his own book is rare, and I was glad enough to read, out here on a Finnish island, the story of Orion's return from France, and of Macmullen's enviable death, sitting in the cockpit of Perseus, the tiller under his arm, in mid-channel, on a starlit night. I observed that Macmullen, even in our temperate climate, laid up his ships early in September, and, looking at the calendar, remembered that we were far from home. It was after midnight before I put the book back on its shelf, and dropping over the pierhead into the dinghy, threaded my way in the dark through the little fleet to Rakundra's gleaming portholes, for the ancient, long asleep, had thoughtfully lit the cabin lamp. It isn't the Aaron's Grund after all, said the passenger, the ancient supported me out of esprit de corps, and I, for our very honour, 
held to it that it was, in spite of the visible fact that it showed a white light instead of two red ones. 